live at the Thomas and Mac for Running Rebels Basketball. It's Cofield and Company. Out to Gilbert, back to McCabe, top of the key. A three for Jordan McCabe is good. Alec spins to his left, turns back to the right. Blocked by Muoka. David Mublaka knocks that one out of bounds. Block that thing to Santa Fe. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on a Wednesday. Back here at the Thomas and Mac, early part of the UNLV Mountain West Conference schedule. Boise State. Oh, boy. I almost did the ick that I like to do. Boise State, a team worth rooting against on several fronts. We'll tell you about this year, uh, this year's edition of the Broncos. It's a, a double rice attack with uh, player Max and head coach Leon. And we'll talk about Leon Rice and some of his antics over the years and why Rebels fans uh, get into him pretty hard. But they're a good team. They always are a good team. And this is a must win tonight. And by must win, I mean to really get yourself squarely on the bubble. You have to win most of your home games, and the Rebels did drop a game against San Diego State, so there's not much room for error, and then go steal some on the road. Caleb Herring is the company today, former UNLV quarterback. I know he's fired up about the start at 12-3 and to the season for the uh, running Rebels, and they got a big win in New Mexico. What's going on, buddy? What's going on? I'm, I'm, I'm having a fantastic time of it. A good start for UNLV. The non-con schedule we knew was huge to start off with mostly wins, um, and then getting in a conference competing, I think, with the big dogs, I guess, historically in the conference, and not winning the games, but I think we kind of knew based on how the season would go and the questions that UNLV had going into the basketball season, where where they might be as far as in the middle of the pack in the conference, what the expectations should be, and then talking obviously about getting to the tournament and their chances of that. Obviously, every conference game has more weight, more significance, can't let more slip than you can. Defending the MAC has always been a big deal. Hopefully they can do that here against Boise State. And expectations have been reset a little bit because of the 11-0 start. They were chosen by the conference to finish sixth. I saw two other uh, analytics services pick UNLV for seventh and eighth. Now, right now in the standings, actually, they're not that high up because they're one and two in conference. They lost their first two games in conference. But the expectations are to certainly challenge for a postseason berth. And the, uh, the big expectation or the big goal would be to get into the NCAA tournament. So we got a whole rundown coming. Later on, 5.30, we're going to talk to John Cooper, one of the assistants with the Running Rebels. Also get the preview of the Boise State side from one B.J. Reigns, who runs uh, Bronco, uh, Bronco Nation News. But as company members will tell you, uh, Ari can tell you, sometimes the rundown is followed, sometimes it's not. And I had a couple of random thoughts just this second. We haven't had a chance to do our uh, food podcast in a while. <laughs> uh, we're still doing our UNLV All Access podcast. That drops on uh, Thursday mornings. You can go to UNLV All Access on Twitter to find that. But the food podcast we haven't done, and I just wanted to mention, I just saw the uh, travel plans for UNLV's trip. If people don't know, I do the sidelines, so I'm, I'm on the trips with the Running Rebels. But the trip to Logan, Utah, my favorite. Uh, well, <laughs> I've, got, I've got Laramie and Logan ranked at the bottom. Laramie's much more of a drinking city, but it's very confined. And the problem, and they're both cold, but the problem with Laramie in, you know, at the elevation, not that Utah is you know, below sea level, but it gets freaking cold. So you could hit there and it could be just freaking frigid and you can't really walk around. Logan is not really a drinking city at all because it's Utah, um, but it's gotten better. Uh, but we did. We had a little tiff the last time we went for football the, this most recent season because you and I disagreed 
a bit on where to go. And I wanted to roll the dice on going to a Cajun place mm -hmm. that had been featured on Triple D in Logan, Utah. And you were like, I can't do it. I could do it because any place that is heavily featuring seafood that is not a coastal <laughs> place, as a rule of thumb, can't be that good. That's just the mindset that I have when I go. Right. To, it's it's not you. You can't have seafood as your staple, as your main dish, especially like shrimp. You're not gonna have. I'm like, probably not getting shrimp or catfish. And, at and, this and, place. and crawfish. That was one of the featured yeah, dishes. I'm not either. getting crawfish at, at a non-coastal city, especially one that's as far inland as Utah. I don't. I just didn't trust it. Now I hadn't watched the episodes of Triple D to see it. Now I now. Obviously, I have a little bit more trust in their opinion and what they say mm -hmm. as food critics. Um, so I, I may have made a mistake. And judged on the reviews, I think they actually are a legit place right. for Cajun food. So I, I may have made a mistake. So you now have a chance to redeem our little foodies uh, takes by going and testing it. And there's a good chance. There's sure. a good chance I go alone because uh, the the basketball crew may not may may have basically the same attitude. You As have, I had, yeah. Yeah, they're like, we're not going to roll the dice. So so. What but I, I will be adventurous on the road. I do it for the people. <laughs> <laughs> He's committed. Steve yes, is committed. Yes. I will find, what we should do is find a link to, like, the, the episode of of Triple D, uh -huh. and then maybe we can use that as a persuasive technique to like send it to them. Maybe if they see it and know that this place, maybe the food's not good. Maybe it's still a miss, but just to know that it was you know famous for however famous it gets from here. Uh, we Triple had reports D. of uh, Logan having a good pizza place, so we'll see about that. So we'll make the best of the uh, Logan trip, right? Uh, what was us? We get to travel uh, to go cover these <laughs> events. It's actually a, a cool perk. Um, this game's coming up tonight, Boise State at 8 o'clock. So tip-off, run a rebel warm-up is at 7.30. I uh, wanted to get into some of the big news of the day around the world of sports. We, uh, we start with a couple of football notes. Um, you know, I saw, it's interesting, I saw uh, the other day uh, someone patting Kirk Herbstreet on the back for all the work he's been doing around football. I didn't love him this season on Thursday Night Football. I don't think he knows the NFL no. well enough. And I, I, you know, I, I've said on the air, I was kind of turned off by Herbstreet over the last five years, being as anti-player as he was, as anti-NIL as he was, as anti-transfer portal as he was. I don't really need to watch him uh, calling NFL games. So I thought he and Al Michaels were just okay. And they were dealt a lot of crappy games. You know, as I watch a national title game, like the true measure of a, we'll say a flexible broadcaster is being able to, basically, you have to do a talk show. Yeah. You have to do a football talk show. And it turns into a college football talk show, a Georgia talk show, a TCU talk show. And I just thought, Man, this is freaking boring. And then they were trying to, he and Fowler are trying to defend the annihilation down the stretch. Like, oh, it's important for Kirby to get these guys in. Like, stop. But his workload the last four months, um, let's see, 18 college football games for ESPN, 15 games for Amazon, 36 different cities. All right, so he's a road warrior like most sports media people are. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't love what he put out this year. And this is not a bash session. What I wanted to point out is as long as – it was almost 50 assignments September, uh, since September 3rd. As long as we're talking about Herb Street, you saw he got a little bit burned on something he did bring up live during the game, and that was a scheduling change. Mm -hmm. And the source on the scheduling change for Colorado football was Deion Sanders. Oops. He made a mistake on that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Deion's a little non-traditional. Right. Like, I don't think most – I know he – Deion – well, I doubt Deion would say it's off the record. Herb Street should have asked – is this on the record? So long story short, um, Colorado football fans were all fired up because they were going to have a, a conference opener in week zero, according to Dion. 
instead of opening with TCU, which is, would be an incredibly tough matchup coming right out of the gates. Herbstreit reported that on the broadcast, and now, as it turns out, um, it had been discussed by the Pac-12, but it got nixed. Right. So, again, this is not here to bash Kirk Herbstreit, but sometimes when information gets disseminated, you got to make sure you, you, know, you double, triple check it. Because it was a bad piece of information. And I think that's, it's, it, that's twofold to how that can be problematic. First, Kurt should have known better. Like, to, if that kind of big news, you need to make sure that's valid. Like, it, it needs to be double-checked, fact-checked, whatever. But that's the Dion effect, right? Whatever his relationship is with Prime, the unconventional nature of, of Dion's coaching style and the way he goes about distributing information, sometimes you just take it and run with it, and maybe it sticks. Most of the time it has stuck. For, for the most part with Dion as, as his coaching career is going on. But then it also gives it the angle of how in the know is Dion and how powerful is he really in the Pac-12 landscape. Because <laughs> if he's making the mistake of leaking that information, right. thinking it's valid, was he really in the room where that decision was well, made? He may have also told Herb Street we might be doing this, and Herb Street took it as an absolute. Took a chance and said, hey, I'm going to be the one to break this live oh. on the national championship game, and I'm going to get credit for breaking the story. And then it's going to turn to this big thing that Kurt is so woven in. I don't think he's at the point in his career where he needs to be trying to prove that anyway. Yeah. Like you said, the workload he's getting, he's getting everything he wants as far as what his job load has, his, the respect people have in the industry for him. I, I will agree with you this season. I was unimpressed when I'm on Thursday nights. It, it's clear to me that he's a college football voice, mm-hmm. and I think it was a risk for his career to try to dabble in the NFL. It's clear his takes and his angles and his knowledge of the NFL game, not necessarily a football, but just of the NFL personnels, uh, the, the behind-the-scenes workings. He's not able to have the same input as he is in college. It's hard to do great. two games a week. It, is ab- it, it is takes tough. a lot of work for, for color analysts to do one game. And I know people don't appreciate this, but because you don't just have everything memorized for every team in the country or every NFL team. It does take some work, and to do two games a week is pretty tough. And there are NFL guys who do uh, TV, right. and then oftentimes they'll do a radio you know, game another day of the week. Those, that's a hard assignment to do and on two top games of that, a week. He's got game day every week during college football, which is they go through the gambit of college football. It's not just the game uh, he's right. doing in broadcast. It's the games that are big across the whole nation. There's just more college football games, more on his plate to digest and have information for. So, I, I mean – Kudos to him for taking it on. I'm not going to pat him on the back and say it's, it's some miraculous thing and he deserves extra credit. It's, it's a job you signed up to do, so that's the job you're going to do. That's fine. Now he's got eight months off to kind of <laughs> figure it out. I guess my, my whole point on the national championship game was – That was a hard game to call because it was such a – It dud. was hard. Yeah. But I also feel like – I feel like as the NFL is searching really, really hard for the next guys, the next Romos, mm-hmm. right, and they've got like five or six people on the radar, it could be Sean Payton next. Check that. It could be Sean McVay next. Right. Um, they tried Peyton this year. I thought he was good at some things. You know, obviously Drew Brees you know, gave it a go last year. He wasn't great. Um, I don't feel like college football has, like, the guy. And it might be Pat McAfee, although I, he might be wasted on a game. But on a national yeah. title game, I feel like the, the star of the show on the call, aside from the game, there should be someone big in there that's, you know, really interesting, really riveting makes bombastic statements, and I don't know if that college football has that right now. I, I, yeah, I don't think they have it. I agree with that. I think Kirk Herbstreit is more by the book guy, like as far as broadcasting and being an outlet. When you look at Tony Romo, he's very unconventional at how he approaches being a color guy on the, on the broadcast. It's, that's refreshing. He's like the guy in the living room that knows football really good and just having conversation with you, whereas Herbstreit, I think, has the structure of how it's supposed to go and like the, the textbook way a color analyst should give information. I don't know if I would risk it with McAfee. He's great, but I don't know if he's <laughs> – I would say 
reined in enough yet. Yeah. Or, or I, like I thought he walked on game day and he was the best person on the show Absolutely. immediately. Personality. Oh, he took because that he has show personality over. and yeah. he knew the sport. He actually did his homework, at least on that game. Absolutely. And he knew about other games. But, you know, I'll give you, you know, part of the reason for that is, and this is another thing for broadcasters, when you're watching them, you got to have gambling knowledge. You got to at least have a feel for what the game is by framing it around the point spread. Right. And what's happened in the recent weeks and expectations before the season. And that's where, you know, some of the, the older guys, and not that Herb Street's old, but that's where some of the older guys oftentimes are like, what, what's going on with the spread? I don't pay attention to stuff like that. Well, then you're missing out because it is part of the story. A hundred percent. And it's, a, it's the same thing with the kind of analytics conversation where there's, there's a different conversation that you have about sports through the lens of analytics, through the lens of traditionalist, purist. And then now, as much as people want to fight it, with the legalization and the stigma around betting being kind of uplifted across the country, there is a conversation around sports that is strictly through the lens of betting. You have to be able to dabble in it. You have to be able to sit at the table and have that conversation now. You can't just be, oh, that, that's nonsense, that's silly, and I'm looking at No, that's a, a good percentage of the country, of your audience, is very interested in the betting lines and what's going on as far as the spreads, how things are impacted. If you can at least translate your traditional analytics into the betting market, let's say injuries and how they impact it, then I think you're missing out on what you could have on a broadcast. So a lot of developments on the football front locally with UNLV. There's been a lot of stuff going on. We haven't, you know, the news hasn't been out there in terms of blowing things up because it's a lot of coaching hires. It's a lot of offers to 24s and 25s. It's transfer portal guys kind of leaking in after the, uh, the weekend that just passed, the visit weekend. But one of the big stories now going back a couple of weeks, really going back about – three weeks now, was Bobby Petrino in as the offensive coordinator. He bails after 20 days, 18 days, 20 days. Uh, Chris Beard was 18 days. Petrino bailed after 20 days. They recover pretty rapidly, UNLV football and Barry Odom does, by moving on from the 61-year-old OC to a 30-year-old OC in Brennan Marion, who was on the Texas staff but has a long history at FCS. And people think he's a wunderkind and a future head coach. This is a really interesting hire. It is. And I think one thing that makes me know it's an interesting hire is that uh, looking at the reaction from people on the destination left is one of the, the cool things. Like looking at the previous stops and saying, oh, man, that's a shock that he left. He was an up-and-comer. He made the job relevant. It's good luck to him. There's not a lot of negativity from the fan base when he leaves. Like, you know, that's, that's – I know it doesn't mean much, but it's just interesting to see how the fans were receptive or maybe wanted him back at his previous stop. So now, you know, he gets him into the fold. It's like that gives you some confidence to say, hey, the other school liked him. And, you know, they were confident where the direction he was going. Then you look at it. Uh, he's responsible for innovation at this level. And that's one of the biggest things that I take away. It's like it's not like he's some coach that's coached in a coaching tree and did kind of what the traditional coaches have always done and run the same system, same mundane offenses. It's like, no, he's got credited with innovative offensive creation. And that's a big deal to me. Now, how much that creativity is allowed to flourish at UNLV, how much of it gets reined in by Barry Odom, who you could say has a more traditional kind of background with SEC football and there's a way that football should be played, that's yet to be determined. If he gets free reign to just run the offense how he wants to, that's that's. I think free reign is strong, but I think the message has been sent with both of these hires that they want to play a certain style of football. Right. Although I would say Marion seems like he's going to be more up-tempo than Petrino would have been. Not that mm -hmm. Petrino's offenses aren't high-flying, but a lot of it is built around the power run game. Right. Uh, 
Yet they were kind of offering the same sort of players. So we'll get, we're going to get into who they've gotten commits from so far. The personnel on this team, when you look at it, you're like, hey, they can go super fast. Yeah. The, the, no, the existing personnel yep. that returns, do you believe they can go super fast? I, I think they can. And I think they, they probably should have gone fast a lot more last year during the season. And that's you know, obviously in the past. But I think they have personnel to fit it. And I think a lot of the personnel that could have fit a fast-paced system comes down to your running back, and the running back that I think fits was on the sideline most of the time, and Courtney Reese. And I, he wasn't used, I think, enough. Aiden Robbins is more the power running back, and we've talked about this, had discussions about it both here and on the podcast, about Aiden Robbins' style not necessarily fitting the pace style. Um, I think they had enough receivers to spread the, the thing out a little bit. Um, so I, I, I would like to see pace. And there's some athleticism on the offensive line, too. They're not a bunch of statues and, 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 and hogs up there. They can get going, and they're not – you know, the traditional offensive line already as you have it. So I, I think they have the personnel to quickly transition to this, which is a part of why this decision is being made. And Coach, Coach Odom has done, I think, a good job of paying attention to the guys he's already had in the locker from the time he came in, re-recruiting them, trying to keep them here, trying to maximize what they already bring to the table. He's already been well aware of that. And another thing about Coach Odom and the first conversation we had with him at the presser, one of the things he said was he looked at as a head coach when he's talking about an offensive coordinator, the things that he knows as a defensive coordinator give him headaches. Can he find that in an offensive coordinator? Because he's aware of, you know, as a defensive coordinator, I know what offenses give me problems. I know what schemes on offense give me problems. Tempo is probably up there on the list of things that create issues for a defensive coordinator. I would say it's probably one or two on the list. <laughs> uh, then you look I can at tell the you, I can tell you from being on the sidelines, the one game where the defense, well, there was a couple games, but one of the games that the defense was really freaking out and the coaches were really challenged for UNLV was against Fresno. High and speed. Fresno yeah. goes fast, fast, fast. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, you're talking about Marcus Arroyo knowing the Tedford system, but on the defense, that was one of the games where they came to the sidelines. They're like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. So tempo, I mean, it really does give a challenge to defenses. It's up there, absolutely. And then, you know, the go-go offense, is which, which what Coach Marion's been credited with kind of being one of the inventors of. Also, <laughs> you look back at UNLV history, Howard's offense was a brainchild, was part of his creation. Like, that was Howard – and how they ran the triple option from two backs offset in the shotgun to the same side, and it gave UNLV defensively fits, running formations to the boundary, uh, little things that, are, that make the rules change defensively, like putting two receivers on the ball. One of them is ineligible, but d- that throws your schemes into flux. Like it, it's amazing how much defense have issues because it's not your normal traditional structure of an offense. That's huge. And so I think those two factors, when you look at Barry Odom high, making this higher, it's like, those two things play a huge role into why I think Marion may have success as the offensive coordinator. He's a young, young coach, up-and-comer, not experienced as a coordinator elsewhere, as passing game coordinator, but he's up-and-coming, and, coming and the, all news is training upward. So I think it's a good hire. I think it's going to be exciting. I think you reach a younger audience, uh, the 61 to, to 30, what, 30 plus, barely over 30. You get you know, the youth and then also a coach of color, which is a, a, a big deal today. Whether or not people want to admit it, I think it, it, it's a good look for the aesthetics of the hire. And it, it brings in a younger crowd. So I, I think there's excitement around the hire, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see if they can recruit to the offense and if the offense sticks and, and how far it can go. Join Cofield and company on Fridays for the 3 to 6 show at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. There's nothing like a football Friday at Treasure Island. What's up? It's Tyler Bischoff from the Press Box coming up on the show tomorrow. Did UNLV pull off another win over Boise State? Did EJ Harkless have a big game? And how is their NCAA tournament resume looking? Plus, 
The Golden Knights are finally back in action. They take on the Florida Panthers. We'll get into some Raiders offseason as it looks like they're not going to make any significant coaching changes. J.R. Starkus will be about to make you a drink. All of that starting at 7 a.m. tomorrow. What do you say we end a three-day weekend with some Monday Night Football playoff action? The final wildcard game features Tom Brady's Buccaneers hosting Dak Prescott's Dallas Cowboys. Can Tom Brady find one more year of magic in that aging arm of his? Or will the boys from Dallas make Jerry proud and move on to the next round of the playoffs? Listen in starting at 4.30 Monday on ESPN Las Vegas, 1100 a.m. and 100.9 f.m. The attendance has been growing and steadily increasing, which I think, you know, New Mexico having a sellout. You know, Boise reportedly having a sellout uh, crowd. San Diego State, of course, uh, being what they've been doing for a while. Now, if we can get the Thomas and Mac back to those, filling that lower bowl first, having more people in the upper upper deck, I think we're going to start seeing a Mountain West that's really reminiscent of what we saw right before expansion. And, of course, Reno. They have great crowds. Now, back to Coalfield and Company, live at the Thomas and Mac. That's a big part of college basketball around the Mountain West Conference. San Diego State has a, a massive advantage, not only because it's a good program and a consistent program, but they generally get big crowds at Vieja. So it wasn't the biggest last night. Didn't matter. They destroyed, as uh, Kevin Kruger called them, Reno. Nevada got ran out of the house and made a run at the end. So if you're watching it, they actually covered the spread plus nine and a half. It was a pretty amazing cover because they were down 71 to 50 with like five minutes left. Um, attendance is a big deal, and I'm telling you, the uh, Lobo faithful, and if New Mexico has a, a big season, they continue to play really well, they're going to show up six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 here for the Mountain West Conference Tournament. Um, there aren't many venues that get a lot of fans. Nevada's attendance has been okay. It's nowhere near, even though they're having a good season, nowhere near where it was when Muss was around. 8.30, check that. 8 o'clock start tonight here at the Thomas and Mac. You can get your tickets at unlvtickets.com. We are hanging out uh, by Section 106 at the uh, Whiskey Bar. Actually, I think they rebranded it, the uh, Dos Equis Bar. Um, they do have $2 beers tonight. Every weeknight game for the Run Rebels, the rest of the season, weeknight games, $2 beers. So Rebels taking on a very good Boise State team. Some breaking news in from the NFL. Um, the big news of the day came in this morning with the Dolphins. Much smaller note, but the same division. Uh, Vunderkin, I'll use that word for a second time today. I've referenced the... Uh, Brennan Marion, the new UNLV OC, 30-year-old, as a, a superstar upcoming. Mike LaFleur, Matt's brother, who was supposedly a big get for the Jets as the OC, he has been pushed out. They're going to part ways. Not exactly sure if there's a philosophical difference. The offense did struggle, but the offense also uh, lost Brees Hall. But if you want to lay... Development of Zach Wilson at the feet of LaFleur, I guess you can make the case for that. And I think that would be the biggest considered failure organizationally, right? Like, we went out and got the quarterback. I don't know how much input you had on getting the guy on, on Wilson, right? Like, it's not like you were responsible for saying, Zach Wilson's my guy for my offense. But we expected you to develop in him into at least somebody who's worthy of being a first-round quarterback, right? We d- expected you to be able to tailor your offense to some degree to him. I don't know that it's a knock on Mike LaFleur to say that Zach Wilson didn't work out, um, especially when you look about the success that your backup had in the offense when White took over and the offense was humming. And, again, you talked about with, with, with the missing running back that you drafted in the first round or, or a high draft pick. When he goes down for injury, your offense is going to look different. 
so how much of this can you really lay on the feet of of the coach? I, I don't know. I think there's a lot wrong with what happened with the Jets down the stretch. From, you know, early in the season, it looked like they were a playoff contender, like they were legit going to have a shot of getting to the playoffs to just spiraling downhill uh, over the home stretch. And a lot of it just honestly had to do with injury. Your roster didn't make it all the way to the finish line. Um, but obviously some changes need to be made, and I think Zach Wilson's saga might be over mm-hmm. in New York. I, that's a possibility. I think, you know, it's it's the Jets are back in the quarterback hunt again, so we'll see. Um, but Mike LaFour being gone, and I think that's a – something had to change, right? When your organization goes from a playoff contender to not sitting at home during wild call weekend, I think you make a change. And I think a lot of times the first head to roll is a quarterback. They already chopped that head then you go to the offensive coordinator. And then next to go will be the head coach. So now you, you got your head coach who was everybody was excited about. He's probably now, to some degree, on a hot seat going into next year. Like, if he's not able to produce something, then, then the Jets are then going to be blaming the head coach for their woes. A couple things. First, I was trying to look up when Mike LaFleur got hired. It was January of 2021. So he was around for the draft he was of Zach Wilson. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if the, we'll get some stories that, like, that's the guy Mike loved. Yeah. If that's the case, then he probably should work for another organization and not have his hands on the draft. I doubt you know, he was the big recommendation on that one. Second one here is, again, the Jets OC is out. I was reading a story, and it's fan-sided, which I can't stand this site, but I'll give them the pop because they do the pages, mm-hmm. and I never get through more than two of them. <laughs> and this one's really tough. They're talking about nine veteran OCs they could hire. The first name mentioned, you're going to laugh at this one, and which is why I'm not going to scroll anymore. I just, I just saw is, the picture. I just the first name mentioned is Troy Calhoun. I'm like, wait, is there a different Troy Calhoun than the one who coaches Air Force? Is he leaving for the NFL to be the OC for what? Like, why would you even write that? What? That is zero possibility of happening. Other names mentioned are guys like Jay Gruden, uh, former uh, Raiders OC and worked with the Rams. Greg Olson is on the list, so we'll see what the uh, the Jets do. But it's a division where. You better start moving forward offensively because we know the Bills are going to have a good offense. Um, I don't know about the Patriots. Uh, Reports today out of Boston, meeting between Bobby Kraft and Belichick, established that changes have to be made, which I would assume from a personnel standpoint, that's one thing, but from a coaching staff standpoint, like have an OC. But in that division, if the Pats stink on offense, that's one thing. The Dolphins are not going to be bad on offense once Tua is back. And here's the bad news for the Dolphins. Tua will not be back for this game against the Bills. Oh, boy. Which is devastating news for the Dolphins. I think the, the Bills can breathe a sigh of relief because that was a bad draw for a Bills team. Like, to, to do that close to winning the division and, and having home field throughout and all that stuff and really having a solid season, one of the better seasons in the AFC outside of, you know, Kansas City, um, obviously, who won the division. But to draw the, 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 the Dolphins in that first week, one of the more dangerous teams, and it – I think their woes down the stretch had more to do with injury than anything else. Um, but I, nobody wants to play a team like that, that can just be explosive with Hill and, and Waddle. And if Tua was healthy, those they're a high-powered offense. I think it was safe to say that when they're at full strength, they are high-powered. So the Bills are probably the ones that are breathing the sigh of relief right now. Unfortunately for Tua, what is this, concussion number three on the season? I think two that were actually diagnosed. There was the one that what everybody said he should have been pulled out of the game with a concussion. Um, but for his career, his individual career, you feel bad for the guy. You want to see him play and prove it in the playoffs because now everybody's going to hold it against him. He's never won in the playoffs. He's never. 
all these things. Is he really the franchise quarterback? There's conversation if he's going to be shopped at the end of this. You know, if, it, if he doesn't have success in the playoffs, do the Dolphins look elsewhere? Would Derek Carr possibly be available? Tom Brady possibly be available next year? You know, and that's unfair, I, in my opinion, to Tua, because I think he had the makings of an MVP season underway the first half of the year, before concussion number one. And obviously, Jalen Hurts and Pat Mahomes kind of separated in that conversation, but the Dolphins with Tua are a scary contender team. I'm not going to say Super Bowl favorite, but they could very well upset the Bills. And you look through that first the game, the matchup in Buffalo, in the cold, the way they took Buffalo down to the wire. Yep. Absolutely, Buffalo was probably thinking to themselves, this is a, a, a crappy draw for us in the first round of the playoffs on what is supposed to be our year, right? Like for them to match two of being out, changes pictures. You look at the betting line, how much that changed with two is announcement. I think it's up in double digits now with as far as this point spread. So Buffalo definitely breathing a sigh of relief. I, I feel for two and I feel for the Dolphins who had something cooking this year. But unfortunately, concussions have, have pretty much derailed their season. And the offseason conversation around Tua is going to be fascinating. What do you do with a guy? Not that concussions are a sign of someone being injury prone. I don't like mm-hmm. that description, but it is something to consider. Do you have enough material on him to pay him like Joe Burrow or even be in the neighborhood of a Justin Herbert? That'll be the big story in the offseason. Want the skinny on UNLV football? Listen to the weekly UNLV All Access podcast with Cofield and Caleb Herring. A new episode drops each Thursday morning at UNLV All Access on Twitter. Bennett takes the snap and the shotgun, throws for the corner. Brock Bowers one-on-one. Caught! Touchdown! He ate him alive! Falls down into the end zone. Six more for Georgia. You're listening to Cofield and Company, live at the Thomas and Mac. Georgia Radio Network on the uh, Brock Bowers touchdown there. That was to go up 45-7. Georgia rolls 65-7. Bowers will be a big name. One, because he's from Georgia. Two, he just won a national title. Three, he's at an interesting I'm not going to say coveted position. Some organizations love tight ends, and they will actually reach into the first round to grab a tight end. You know, the other thing that's interesting about Bowers is he's got a guy on his team from Vegas who is a freak in Darnell Washington at 6'8 and 270. I'm curious to see what people think of him, if they think he's underdeveloped as a receiver or he comes into the NFL and he's basically like Kyle Brady, you know, Mm -hmm. just primarily a, a blocking guy. I think he's got a lot of untapped potential. And the other part of this the best tight end in the draft may actually be the other guy from Vegas and Dalton Kincaid from Utah, who somehow didn't have any offers, <laughs> including locally. Yeah. Landed at, it just annoys me when, when, when stories like that emerge, and you're like, come on. You're right. Guy's in your backyard, and he goes to San Diego to start and then lands at Utah. So the tight end stuff in the draft is going to be crazy. But we heard the Georgia victory. I came in yesterday, and uh, I probably didn't start the show the way I should have. I guess I should have sat there and genuflected at the feet of Georgia, talked about the cool story of winning back-to-back, right. played up the angle of Kirby Smart passing Nick Saban, which we'll get to a little later on. But I went down the path of when the SEC wins a title and there's a dominant team in college football, lazy people come on shows and don't break down the football game and why and what happened, why it happened and what happened in the game. Instead, they go right to college football sucks. <laughs> Field of 12, what a waste of time. Like, wait wait a second. Yeah. Let's be adults and break down the game. And I, we didn't have you on yesterday, but you're the first guy I thought of. I'm like, I would like to hear Caleb break down this game and exactly what 
right. TCU was doing on defense because that's not a talent difference when guys are running free all over the field. No. Th- those are scheme issues and confidence issues. And there was their schemes, I think, that worked for TCU in the past against similar styles of offense. Uh, and, and I'll go back to Michigan where everybody anticipated Georgia and Michigan kind of playing the same brand of football as far as how they're going to run the ball, use their physicality to dominate in the trenches. Um, so the pass game and what they used defensively against the pass game wasn't necessarily the issue or what they were preparing for. It turns out that Georgia has a really good pass attack plan, especially when they figure something out. I don't know what they figured out, but they were obviously exploiting the scheme. They knew the rules for TCU. So when you got guys running down the field wide open, not so much that TCU had a bad scheme, but that it was absolutely exploited based on what Georgia did. There was a couple of plays that got highlighted um, by Herbstreit, who did a good job, I think, of, of breaking it down on the fly, where they took advantage formationally of the rules of the defense. So they played what's kind of like a bracket coverage to TCU on the back end with their safeties, two safeties high, kind of out spread out to the field, especially against certain spread formations where the rules say I'm watching what number two on my side does. If he comes to me, I'm taking him. If he goes out, I'm going to number one. I'm bracketing him on the outside. That's kind of a basic bracket scheme right there. You, uh, Georgia did a great job of using motion, motioning key players across the formation and sending them to the boundary, opening up the middle of the field. It just broke the rules of the pass scheme on the defensive side. So that uh, credit to the coaching of Georgia, which – Obviously, we'll talk about Kirby and how he understands, you know, defensive schemes. He was probably involved in the game plan for the offense and saying, like, hey, I see what they're doing here. I know this defensive scheme. I know what it's supposed to be intended to do. So, therefore, I know how to exploit it. I know the weaknesses of it. And that made the pass game so easy for Stetson Bennett, Um, especially when you talk about the talent they have and the threat to run it and the dominance in the trenches that they could always fall back on if they needed to. They didn't really need to. But I I would just say it really did come down to uh, the matchup being lopsided and then the game plan georgia is as as a great coaching staff has been assembled in the sec georgia figured tcu out on top of being the more dominant physical team so I, you set tcu up for failure they, they got out coached no question about mm-hmm. it and then on top of that four and five star recruits that's all that georgia has tcu can't say that and that's just the honest reality of it that's a better team that had a better scheme and the result is a blowout and a dud for fans to watch. Fortunately, the semis were good and gave us a treat. But I'm not going to say college football sucks. This is what happens when you put in an, a quote-unquote inferior team uh, because there's no doubt in my mind that Alabama gives us a better top four. If you put Alabama in place of TCU, you get more competitive football games. Is that what we want to see? If people are saying college football sucks because of that national championship, then that's what they're clamoring for. So then don't give me your sad stories about how it's always Alabama, Ohio State, and, and Georgia in the college football playoffs. Because if we want the most entertaining games at the end of it for the finale, you're going to have to put those teams in. Stop trying to give little guys a chance unless you're going to have a Cinderella story like, you know, like, well, like the tournament does where a team earns their way to the team, to the dance, by winning consecutive upset games to get there then that's a different story. But the current top four format, the best four should be in it if we really want entertainment value in the national championship. I think the 12-team tournament is going to help. Oh, yeah. Because, first of all, the, the challenge of getting through more games, we see the best team in the country doesn't always win the NCAA basketball tournament. The best team in baseball doesn't always win the World Series. More layers of playoffs make it more difficult. And I still think this year... And I will still go with college football is getting more balanced. There are power programs, and it's a bit cyclical. 
where they become, you know, some teams out there are superpowers. But I think between NIL, transfer portal, the fact that there's a quarterback free agent market now, most programs don't really have a two at QB that you definitely can rely on the following year. You may have to go into the portal. Mm-hmm. I think college football is getting more balanced. I would, like right now, Georgia's three to one to win the national title next year. If you could give me the no on that and I could bet minus 400, I'll take it because I don't know in a full season what their next guy, Beck, is going to do. Right? Oh, hey, he Clem- did look good. <laughs> Clemson, hey, Clemson was an automatic. It's just going to keep rolling on. Yep. They got a top five recruit in DJU. Didn't and now work. He's it, in the transfer. This board. is a very delicate system. Yeah. And while we're at it, you played the position. So you know what you're watching when you see receivers open all over the field. Stetson Bennett is talented. Yeah. I, I, don't, I was saying yesterday that I think he can be in the NFL. I think he could be a, a backup if he's got the right attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, hell, I'll go white to white with the comparison and size. With we'll see. I'm not saying he's Purdy, although at times he's played better than Purdy did in college, especially last year. Now, did he have the you know a better group around him? Yes. Look where Purdy is now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Stetson Bennett's as smart as Purdy. I don't know what his work ethic is like on that level. Uh, Chase Daniels made like whatever it is now, ninety million dollars as a backup. Right. I think it's a little south of that, but um, and he never plays. There are spots in the NFL for dudes who are just reliable, consistent. They may have to play every once in a while. But I just want to say on the collegiate level, like to just look at him and go, great team, anyone could do that. Well, not anyone can do it, clearly. J.J. McCarthy on Georgia, I don't know what he does. Yeah. I, so I, this is the thing about it. I, Stetson Bennett is 25 years old. Let's, let's let that sink in for a little bit because that's old for college football, right? So he's doing what a 25-year-old smart By football way, player it's, does. It's old in the rest of the country. In the Mountain West sometimes it's not that old because <laughs> yeah. there are 23- and 24-year-olds playing. <laughs> yeah. So the 20, to be a 25-year-old quarterback, not just 20, but at Georgia for right. his whole career. He started as a walk-on, and that's a big part of the story, but he was still at Georgia the whole time. So he's learned at Georgia how to play the position, what's expected of the position at the offense. So he's a seasoned veteran. The last time we had a seasoned veteran do something like that or an older quarterback was Joe Burrow. And there was a big thing where at the time when Joe Burrow did it, he was older than the current NFL MVP, which was which was at the time Lamar Jackson. So I think there's like eight NFL quarterbacks who play who, who are, are younger who than are younger Stetson than Bennett. Stetson Bennett. Yeah. How crazy is so, that? So and that's so when you're talking about what Stetson Bennett is able to do, it's not like anybody can do it. It's and it's not like it's just his talent that's getting it done. It's the wisdom of playing the game longer. If I could go back and play my senior year, when I was 25, I left college when I was 22. If I can go back with three more years of just learning football and being educated on systems and reads and how to prepare, I would dominate too. I, I, I'm not saying that you know I'm good at Stetson Bitter or anything like that, but I'm just saying with age comes wisdom. I think that's what you learn at the quarterback position especially. I'm not going to say it's all on Georgia. I, I will say that there was a point during the broadcast when it can, became a snoozer and you're just trying to find storylines to continue to talk about they went a little overkill on the Stetson Bennett. And, <laughs> si- and since the game, there's been some hot takes about Stetson Bennett that I've been like, okay, pump the brakes, people. Stetson's done something. He's accomplished something that's amazing. But Stetson Bennett should not be selected in the first round of the NFL draft. No. And if he is, I'd, I'd be utterly floored at that. His accomplishments are great. I don't think he, there's many quarterbacks in college history that could say they won back-to-back national championships. I know no walk-on can say it. No, no, guy, no quarterback that started a walk-on can say it. But he accomplished a lot at college. He's not a better quarterback. He's not a top five quarterback available in the draft. I don't even think I, I agree with the Brock Purdy comparison that he probably ends up in that ballpark. Not quite Mr. Irrelevant, but as far as what he's capable of doing on an offense, I could see him very much being 
just like Brock Purdy is. Uh, and let's not give let's not shortchange Brock Purdy here. Brock Purdy played phenomenally for the Niners, right? He's he's and he was a guy that was a Heisman candidate going into his senior year, who had a, a pretty rough senior year. But Brock Purdy's a legit quarterback, so this is not a, a knock on 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 Stetson Bennett. But you do have to factor in the fact that he has the best team in college football around him, defensively and offensively. I think Georgia proved themselves a tier above everybody else this past season. Join Cofield and company on Fridays for the 3-6 to six show at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. There's nothing like a football Friday at Treasure Island. You're listening to Cofield and Company, live at the Thomas and Mac. Good job by uh, Doug on the update there. Lady Rebels playing as well, along with the uh, Runner Rebels UNLV men's team here at the Thomas Mac tonight. 8 o'clock tip, $2 beer night. All weeknight games have 2 bucks on the beer. By the way, this weekend, uh, big retirement day for Dick Calvert. He's retired, but they're going to honor Dick Calvert, the, one of the voices of the Rebels. Saturday game against Colorado State. Again, here at the Thomas and Mack. And Lady Rebels playing tonight. Uh, heavily favored over San Jose State and off to an awesome start. Dealing with some injury issues. They've just kind of changed things up. And they're playing a lot of small ball, just like the running Rebels are. Uh, a lot of football this hour. Some NFL updates. Tua not going to play this weekend. That sucks for the Dolphins. Sucks for football fans because healthy Dolphins team against the Bills is quite a challenge for Buffalo. Uh, we've now got – we just had uh, – Another OC fired in the National Football League. Boy, some of the coaches that are being interviewed, pretty interesting candidates uh, around the NFL. Uh, Where's the update here? All right, head coaching openings in the NFL. Broncos, Cardinals, Colts, Panthers, Texans. There's two GM openings, Cardinals and the Titans. OC openings, Commanders, Jets, Rams, Titans. Two DC jobs open right now, Browns and Falcons. So uh, changes here around the NFL. Changes here with UNLV football. Barry Odom is in as the head coach and for Marcus Arroyo. He's got two young guys as his coordinators. 29-year-old defensive coordinator over from Arkansas, former linebacker at Missouri, just like Odom was, a linebacker at Missouri. Brennan Marion is in as the offensive coordinator. They're reworking the roster. This is always an interesting time for me because I really try to keep super close attention to what the roster is going to look like, but I make no assumptions about who is staying around. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because there was an early wave of uh, five or six guys going into the transfer portal, and the majority of them all landed, actually, uh, I'll say moving up to the Power Five level. And there could be another 15 guys who go bye-bye, because I wonder what the reaction is when players on the current Rebel roster look at who's coming in, and they're like, oh, like yesterday they landed a center. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for the center candidates? Are they, are they truly in a mix to compete? With the new dude who's in, what happens at wide receiver as they bring in, um, you know, a smaller guy in uh, Jacob De Jesus, who's 5'8", 175. They brought in a running back, which I was surprised by the size, in Gary Quarles, who's 5'8", 165, very similar to one of the holdovers. Mm-hmm. You mentioned him earlier, right? Yep, Courtney. Courtney Reese. Are they going to have are they going to have a power back that they add to the mix? Are some of the power backs on the roster going to still be on the roster? Uh, you went through this, and the transfer portal really didn't exist like this mm-hmm. when you played. What is it like in this transition period where you're looking around, you're like, okay, you know, maybe I didn't play with Arroyo and my position coach. I didn't win them over. Do you look at it like, hey, I've got a great shot with a new crew? Or are you like, holy crap, now where's my place with the new staff? 
I think that's really up to you. And I, there's, there's really only two options. It's like the pecking order has changed, obviously, with, with the new coaching. A lot of the history doesn't matter anymore as far as what you did you know, last season with the previous coaching staff. It's an opportunity to start anew, to start fresh, to start better. And then to some people, it's honestly a loss of the privilege you had over the rest of the roster. Like, quite frankly, some people get better chances because they have a better relationship with the coach. Like, they have a longer leash because, hey, this coach likes me. This group sees something in me. They're trying to pull it out of me. So I get more leniency or I get more reps in practice, whatever the case may be. Now that advantage is gone with the new coaching staff. We're all starting from zero. That could be the case. In the case on the offensive line, it's kind of interesting when you got a guy coming in from Buffalo who, who is a center. It looks like to replace Leaf, who transferred out, ended up at ASU. There's guys in the locker room that maybe thought that was their chance, who were playing behind Leaf. When Leaf left, they were probably like, okay, yeah, I'm going to stay around because I have a shot to be the starter, a legit shot. I'm next in line, so to speak. Now bringing in a transfer, you're like, okay, am I going to have to compete with this new guy for it? That doesn't seem fair. Like, what, is he their guy, quote-unquote, their guy? Now now I have a decision to make. Do I want to stay and compete, or do I want to enter the transfer portal at the next opportunity? But I would say, and this is my personality, I would look at it as a fresh start. Anytime there's a new coaching change, I would look at it as a fresh start. Give it a chance, at least, to, to make it work. That would be my, my way of going about it. We'll see who, who decides to stay.